Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. We all know the importance of clarity. When the kid was little, she used to tell me the conclusion of what she was thinking, expecting me to know what I needed to know or needed to do. Multiple times I told her that she has to tell me the whole story because I can't hear what's rattling around up in that head of hers. Today we're in very much the same position as a country. We're given a piece of information, a mandate to follow, with no information as to why, and no example to look to. On today's episode, we'll be given very clear directives by those that clearly don't believe what they say. Then we'll go back in time to a point where clarity apparently mattered. And finally, after the bumper music, goal update number 16, as I'm clearly struggling with dropping podcast episodes lately. So, shut your yap, just do as you're told, and get that flux capacitor fluxing, because... Here we go. Sorry. Here we go. Remember when you were a kid playing tag with your group of fellow children, your chums, your pals? There was always that one kid that felt the rules were somewhat fluid. You know, you tag him and he says you didn't, but if he gets within 10 feet of you, he throws a hissy fit saying he got you. Or she agreed at the beginning where goal was, but then claimed she thought it was over here, not over there, when you tag her. If you don't remember that kid and you don't know what I'm talking about, I've potentially got some bad news for you. Now, we as humans crave consistency, we crave fairness and equality. Remember, not equity, equality. Just treat me the same as everyone else. Let me take advantage of that, or let me waste it. I love the game of baseball. Look, I know most of you don't. I'm I'm sorry for your obvious issue. One of the things I enjoy is when the catcher is up to bat and the ump calls a strike when the ball was clearly not a strike, and the catcher looks back at him and says, You better give my guy that spot, too. See, we just want constancy. As an umpire, you can be bad, at least to a point, just be consistently bad. Back to kids for a second. Any parent or teacher or anyone that's taught or managed or dealt with more than one child at a time in any sort of position of leadership knows that kids want both equality and equity. They want to have the same rules, but only if it results in the same outcome. But the reality is what they really desire is consistency in the rules. We know that when kids break the rules, some you have to whoop and you're still not going to get through to them. And while others, you just have to kind of glance at them disapprovingly and they melt into a puddle of tears and snot. The rules are the same. They're being given the same information, the same chances, but the outcomes might be different based on who they are. The key to all of this is that as humans, like I said, we want consistency. Unfortunately, our current political system, our governmental overlords, our dear leaders, they don't seem to want to play that game. They want equity of outcome, not equality of opportunity, and to make things worse, they have varying degrees of equity and equality based on who you are, your position of power, your intersectionality, your wealth, etc., etc. They're not consistent. They're the exact opposite, completely contradictory, and to make matters even worse, they're in power. They call the shots and make the rules while you and I are stuck trying to navigate a system that guarantees equity and equality 
eh, for some. As George Orwell wrote in his very famous and apparently prophetic novella, Animal Farm, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. See, they face the same problem on the farm. Those in control set the terms for equity, equality, and consistency while being completely contradictory. The term that I think may describe this best is that we currently live in a contradictatorship. As I've done in a number of my recent podcasts, I'm going to jump through a number of articles to prove the point I'm making. You may not see what I mean, you may feel it maybe, but putting the pieces together, that's not how you typically want to spend your evenings. Well, me neither, but here we are, and I think it needs to be put together. So let's start with the base article, the one I read and thought, well, you got to be kidding me. But uh, but no, this is this is no joke. Found on the San Diego Union Tribune via MSN.com, headline, EPA allows gasoline with higher ethanol blend during summer. Now, most of you probably wouldn't care. You wouldn't give this two thoughts about what this is actually saying. In fact, I almost jump past this article, scanning the headlines as I do every morning, closing the tab, and then I reopen the tab because it hit me right when I hit the X to close it that, wait a minute, this is supposed to be a massive no-no. So, very quickly, ethanol is a volatile type of alcohol. It burns rapidly, meaning it can be used as a combustible fuel. In the 1800s, various experiments were done with ethanol to power combustion-driven engines. At that time, steam power was very successful and widely used, so ethanol didn't catch on. Later, Henry Ford designed his first car to run on ethanol, and even up through Prohibition, Ford was pushing for ethanol to be the fuel of choice for cars. But by that time, we had discovered oil, and we had refined it into gasoline, which, as we're all well aware, had apparently won the fuel race. Now, fast forward to the 1970s, and there was a discovery of something called MTBE, methyl tertiary butyl ether. It was discovered that this could be used as an oxygenate additive, something that would promote combustion, essentially, in gasoline. And when the Clean Air Act of 1992 mandated a reduction in carbon monoxide emissions, it was blended into gasoline to try to help automakers comply with the laws. Well, by 2006, MTBE was found to be uh, not so good for the environment and was banned in 20 states for use in gasoline. Enter ethanol, which is nothing but a corn alcohol. So as oil prices were rising, which pushed gas prices higher, corn growers found a new potentially massive market and started increasing production to be used to produce ethanol to blend into gas in place of the MTBE. Since then, demands to reduce oil, to reduce greenhouse gases, to use more renewable sources, etc., etc., there's now ethanol-blended gasoline. That's the norm, right? Now, today, most gas is blended with around 10% ethanol, although you'll see E85 gas at various pumps, meaning that the fuel is anywhere from 51 to 83% ethanol, thus the E85 designation. Yeah, I don't get it either. Also don't care. The problem is that ethanol and ethanol-blended gasoline is not the same as straight gasoline. And prior to 2010, cars were not necessarily designed to handle ethanol blends. So ethanol is a cleaner burning fuel, and it theoretically yields more energy than it takes to create it. Although I'll be honest, I think that's probably horse hockey, using basic principles of physics. The problem is that 
it's less energy dense than gasoline. So bottom line, your engine has to work harder to do what you want it to do. A 10% ethanol blend yields about 3% less miles per gallon than straight gasoline, but it's generally cheaper to produce so they can charge less for the blended fuel at the pump. So for you and I, on a day-to-day -day type of basis, it's probably going to be a wash mostly. However, like I said, it makes the engine work harder to do the same job, and that could potentially add up in wear and failure costs. It's also an alcohol, so it wants to evaporate, which adds to air pollution. This is why we have those piece of garbage new gas cans that have the spill-proof spring-loaded nozzles that never work, that spill gas everywhere and force you to repent sometime after using one. That's why when I buy a new gas can, I immediately throw those pieces of junk away and buy an old-school replacement nozzle and vent and modify the cans just slightly to something that actually works, like the good old days. Now, an article from... 2013 on HowStuffWorks.com tackled the question, can ethanol blended gasoline damage your engine? Well, at that time, and actually earlier, 2011, car manufacturers said that if you used E15, a 15% blend in older cars, you may be voiding your engine warranty. The EPA recommended not using it in cars older than 2001. One problem is that alcohol is hygroscopic, which means it attracts and holds water to a greater degree than gasoline. That water can find its way into your engine. Too much can do bad things. But as even more water gets into the fuel, it turns the ethanol into kind of a blobby, gooey mass that drops out of suspension and starts to clog up the entire fuel system. Alcohol, by nature, is also more corrosive, meaning that metals and rubbers and plastics in your fuel systems would break down faster. Additionally, alcohol can raise the combustion temperature, meaning it's putting more wear due to heat on your internals, especially your exhaust valves, which can cause those to degrade and not seal properly over time. In 2013, the general consumer consensus was that ethanol-blended fuels were a bad idea, and various lawsuits were filed trying to stop or at least delay the transition. Now, fast forward to today, car engines are theoretically designed to burn the ethanol-blended fuel. But be mindful, unless your car is designated as an E85 vehicle, don't use E85. You will destroy the engine and fuel system. Now, all that said, What's the deal with our article today? Well, the blend of ethanol allowed by the EPA changes from summer to winter. 15% in the winter, 10% in the summer. Why? Well, this has to do with the Clean Air Act and the evaporation rate of gas. Remember, alcohol evaporates faster than gasoline. Throw in the temperature factor, and the warmer you get, the faster it's going to evaporate still. So the EPA determined in the 90s that if you blend 15% ethanol in the summer, that added evaporated alcohol leads to increased ground-level smog and decreased air quality. And that's bad. But in the winter, you want your gas to more quickly evaporate into a vapor to aid in starting running in cold temperatures. So 10% in the summer, which is less general evaporation, less smog, happy environment, still angry environmentalists though, and then 15% in the winter, so more evaporation aids in the cold running of engines, environment still happy, environmentalists still angry. As I mentioned, these standards were set in the 90s and have never been revised. 
Also stated was that the ethanol blend is cheaper the more corn juice you mix in the gas. President Trump tried to roll back the winter summer blend thing in 2019, but had that blocked by some activist federal court, by some judge that probably shouldn't be given a gavel or that curly wig thing that I'm sure they still wear as he or she or they or whatever doesn't belong behind the bench in a court of law. Now, I personally don't want more ethanol and gas. I'd like all ethanol out of gas, to be honest, but that's not this lone judge's right to decide that. Sorry, they're not all powerful. At least they're not supposed to be. Well, enter President Vegetable, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., with economic pressures mounting, with gas prices shooting through the roof, you know, because Russia. Biden decided that he would ease the ethanol restrictions in the summer of 2022. This would help ease gas prices a little, would increase the gas supply since we're blending more corn syrup in there, and would help at least to some degree the midterm election chances of his Democrat party. But this was a one-time temporary thing, knowing that the environment, the smog, the air quality, and probably something racial or racist, is depending on this lower percent blend in the summer. Well, fast forward to late April, and we get to our article. Now we're good to sell 15% blend through the summer months. I mean, this is yet another so-called emergency waiver, you know, to ease gas prices and boost fuel supply. Again, they stated as part of the emergency that there is, quote, market supply uncertainty, and this will help the U.S. be energy independent, a thing that, uh, that we actually were under Trump as a net exporter of oil. And it'll give an economic boost to the ag and manufacturing sector. Now you're going to lose another 1-2% to in gas mileage, but don't worry about it. Not a problem. The American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers Industry Group, however, isn't sure what the EPA is talking about when they say that supply is uncertain because the U.S. market apparently doesn't have a supply issue. That makes me ask, what information has the EPA been given that we don't yet have? You know, with our strategic oil reserves lower than they ever have been, well, at least in many decades, and apparently no plan by President Mumbly Joe to fill them back up. And World War III looming. You know, why is the supply uncertain? Huh. Additionally, the industry has been pushing for years and years to allow E15 year-round, but uh, no. Environment, smog, air quality, probably something racist. But in March, the EPA said, oh, you know, it'd be a good idea. Why not allow some states the ability to sell E15 all the time? Why has nobody ever thought of this before? So starting in 2024, you know, an election year, they want to allow E15 year round at about 25 cents per gallon cheaper in Illinois, Iowa, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, Ohio, South Dakota, and Wisconsin. Can anyone say swing states? Yeah, I know, not all of them are swing states, but, I mean, you can't be that obvious. North Dakota, for instance, also petitioned for the year-round sale, but no, you can't have it. So, why is this blend so bad in the summer that we can't have cheaper gas because of the environment? And Trump couldn't even approach the subject without getting smacked down? But under Biden, we've got two emergency actions, and the EPA is ready and willing to say, ah, climate schmime it, it'll be fine. And why is the media that was all over Trump, that is absolutely an intimate, tongue-kissing love with all things environmental, singing the high praise of Dementia Joe and the EPA, touting how wonderful the savings will be for Americans and how the environment is super great? I guess some animals are more equal than others, right? Now that I've hopefully made my point that we're literally in a contradictatorship, just do what we say. Don't question us. We'll make the rules. You'll follow them. 
let's go rapid fire now at some things that should uh, really make us all question what system we're, we're really living in here. Found on Politico.com from June of 2020, headline, Suddenly, public health officials say social justice matters more than social distance. Also found on Brookings.edu from June of 2021, headline, Pandemics and protests. America has experienced racism like this before. So I know this is ancient history, but do you all remember a viral pandemic called the Kung Flu, or I think it was pronounced COVID? Remember how everything we were told, despite there being absolutely no actual literal real science behind it, you know, things like we must mask and potentially up to triple mask and we must social distance at least six feet as six feet was the magic number that literally meant nothing. And remember how we couldn't see loved ones or even sort of liked ones in the hospitals, nursing homes, or even at our own homes for Thanksgiving dinner. Remember how even gathering for Christmas in a house together without windows and doors open, fully masked, unless you were sitting down and or eating. Remember how that would kill grandma? Remember how kids couldn't go to school? And if they did, they had to be distanced. Masked, hallways had to go one way, plexiglass everything. Parents couldn't go in the schools. I wonder if they would have let ugly tranny men come in and twerk and shake their marble pouches in front of the kids, though. It probably, as long as they were masked. Remember how in the second year of this idiocy, the Sturgis Bike Week organizers flew the tall finger at that lying idiot Fauci and held the rally anyway? And all the media said that everyone in the entire world was going to die because of it. And then we never heard anything about it again because literally nothing happened. Then remember how a repeat offending criminal was high on drugs doing criminal things and how he kept saying he couldn't breathe, which started when he was actually sitting upright in the back seat of the squad car, then continued as they wrestled him to the ground and used an approved policing technique to subdue large criminals like him. And the drugs he was high on killed him, but it was decided that it was white cop on black man crime rather than, you know, the real story. Yeah, then the riots. And the questions were asked about the pandemic and the spread of COVID. And isn't it a bad idea to have large groups of people together with a virus out there with a 147% kill rate? Yeah, quote, we should always evaluate the risks and benefits of efforts to control the virus. Jennifer Nuzo, a Johns Hopkins epidemiologist, tweeted on Tuesday, in this moment, the public health risks of not protesting to demand an end to systemic racism greatly exceed the harms of the virus. <sighs> okay, well, let's say it was Ebola. That was floating around. Let's say that was just out there, right? Would that statement hold true? Or is Ebola more dangerous than systemic racism? Which is literally not a thing. It's a made-up term that has no statistical backing at all. Quote, the injustice that's evident to everyone right now needs to be addressed. Abrar Karan, a Brigham and Women's Hospital physician, said, While I have voiced concerns that protests risk creating more outbreaks, the status quo wasn't going to stop hashtag COVID-19 either. I don't even know what that means, to be honest with you. That, that's terrible. And remember how that same sentiment was echoed by media, by politicians, celebrities? Now, is it because the left doesn't care if the blacks die of a virus? Yeah, probably. They're expendable. That's what the leftists believe. Or was it because the pandemic wasn't so much a pandemic as it was an engineered, released, accidentally or not, it's up in the air, virus that turned out not being as potent as designed? Yeah, probably a little bit of that one too, right? 
According to Brookings, quote, During the COVID-19 pandemic, the murder of George Floyd ignited global attention to police brutality and systemic racism in the United States. In spite of social distancing recommendations, mask-wearing Black Lives Matters, protesters flooded the streets across the world during a racial reckoning summer of 2020. From late May until the end of June 2020, roughly 20 million people in the United States participated in demonstrations over the death of George Floyd, as well as Breonna Taylor, another black body among many perceived to be discriminatorily targeted and killed by police. Following the murder of George Floyd, systemic racism was finally classified by many as a public health crisis. This was for good reason. Structural racism also fortifies and informs policies in the United States that perpetuate racial disparities in health outcomes, inequalities in health determinants such as housing, education, and health care, as well as through the discriminatory policing of African Americans. Beyond the mortality of police violence, research has shown that this type of violence also contributes to negative health outcomes, such as psychological stress leading to stroke or accelerated aging. Ugh. So see, as long as there is perceived injustice and mythical systemic racism, a virus doesn't stand a chance. 20 million people, all protected by ill-fitting, improperly worn facial coverings, or maybe not, whatever, why do you care, need I remind you, racism. A virus wouldn't dare intrude on a BLM, hate the cops and whites rally. Moving on, from November 2021, found on Forbes.com, headline... 118 private jets take leaders to COP26 climate summit, burning over 1,000 tons of CO2. And also found on BBC.com from November of 2022, headline, How many private jets were at COP27? So COP, C-O-P, stands for Conference of the Parties, which doesn't sound globally ominous at all, does it? <laughs> it's a massive annual climate conference where hundreds of global elitists, global leaders, celebrities, and likely human-trafficked prostitutes of varying ages, ethnicities, and genders all gather to talk about what to do to the global expendables. You know, you and me. Over 100 private jets carrying only a few people on average go streaking across the sky from all corners of the globe to meet and discuss the ravages of greenhouse gases and the horrors of climate change. Then they go flying to other locations and maybe fly back home for dinner. Then they fly back again. It's their jet. They can do what they want. Now, the Forbes article calculated the carbon footprint of the 2021 meeting of the empty mines at 1,000 tons of CO2. The BBC doesn't calculate the total for 2022, but they basically calculated that for a five-hour flight, about 45.3 tons of CO2 would be emitted. Now, to put that in perspective, the average American home has a carbon footprint of about 20 tons per year. So a five-hour flight is equivalent to two years of the average American home. But you and I are the problem. And we must purchase overpriced, practically useless electric vehicles that we can't park in the garage or charge when we're not watching it because of the fires. And we must get rid of gas stoves and gas water heaters and the children and yourself in order to save the planet for whatever's left. But remember, this is only for a small private jet. Some of these delegations have private Airbuses or Boeings. They can spew out much more. So you'll need to cut a bit deeper as well. 
But how dare you question these individuals? Quote, the Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit's international lead told BBC News that focusing on world leaders taking private jets to COP27 was missing the point. The emissions are negligible compared to the impact of decisions and commitments made at these summits, he said. If you want emissions to come down, you want leaders in the room and media, scientists and stakeholders asking the important questions. I guess how dare we suggest they do this via Zoom or Microsoft Teams or I don't know, FaceTime. I don't really care the way that we all did things during COVID. No, no, no. They must be there and they must fly privately. They can't have the stank of the masses upon them. Are we seeing the double standard, the contradiction in rules of the game, rules for thee, not for me? A contradictatorship, my friends. Now moving to a few days ago, found on CBSNews.com, headline, I look like Barbie. New doll representing someone with Down syndrome has positive local impacts. Aww. <laughs> Why do we care about this? Down syndrome babies are supposed to be aborted, remember? Iceland has eliminated Down syndrome by aborting any baby that tests in the womb as potentially having this just horrible, terrible disability. So wait, is it beautiful or horrible? I, I'm really not sure anymore. If it's such a wonderful thing to the point that we now have a Barbie representing this birth defect, which incidentally, I am 1000% behind making this Barbie. Then why do 16 states as of May 2021 have specific abortion bans just for Down syndrome? Kind of sounds like the bloodthirsty, satanic, baby murder cult wanted to abort their way out of one of those awful, awful Down syndrome babies. But now we're celebrating them through a Barbie. It doesn't appear that Mattel Inc. was ever a huge political contributor, but they're consistently heavily weighted to the Democrat side of things, which of course are the bloodiest, thirstiest, demonic baby murderers out there. So the media and our benevolent overlords are all for these Down syndrome Barbies. I mean, how adorable. But they scream and hiss and shriek like the demons they are when anyone even suggests a limit on abortion of any kind. And how dare you suggest that life is precious, that each and every baby is special, no matter what. A contradictatorship, my friends. And could someone explain to me this? Yeah, I know. I just announced my re-election campaign. Some of you... So what's the big deal, right? He got some applause, whatever, announced. Well, this was Joe Biden, our illustrious mental patient-in-chief, at the latest correspondence dinner. What is the correspondence dinner, you may ask? Well, this is the high-dollar dinner that mostly members of the press come and, you know, rub elbows with the president. Why? I have no idea. This shouldn't be a thing. What really disturbs me is that the members of the unbiased press, the press that's supposed to question everything, dig for the truth literally be the hated, pesky nuisance to our government, striving to keep them honest and expose them when they aren't. They not only applauded, but they whooped and hollered. And we're supposed to get fair, unbiased news of the highest journalistic integrity imaginable? President Trump skipped a few of these dinners, as did Nixon and Carter. The first two presidents deemed the press as an enemy of the administration. That's why they skipped, which... The press is supposed to be, in a sense, not hostile, though. And at least for Trump, the press made no bones about absolutely hating him. But with Biden, we get cheers and applause. Biden doesn't have a hostile press. He has ardent supporters and the bulk of the press corps. And you and I are told to, just expected to, believe everything that they're feeding us. 
Moving on, what about our trusted leaders, our media, our celebrities celebrating pregnancy of someone of note? You know, not, not one of us, the unwashed masses. When that pregnant mother is excited about having the baby, no matter how early or late in the pregnancy, just celebrating, celebrating that she is pregnant with that baby, while at the same time claiming that that same condition in the womb of a woman who doesn't want the child is just a mass of cells that doesn't really mean anything, and who knows what it really is or what it might become, and they all celebrate the abortion. Not to the same human, you can't have both of those. But then again, we have freedom of religion, but not if that means standing for what we believe, as we know that those, the likes of Biden and Pelosi, are super-duper mega-double-doppler Catholics, but they don't let their pesky personal beliefs interfere with public policy or murdering babies, so why should we do that, right? We just need to do what they do, a contradictatorship. We just recently celebrated National Women's Month, getting the entire month of March to celebrate the beauty of womanhood, or more accurately, the fact that these humans are not men, don't like men, don't need men, and can do anything and everything a man can do. And as we know, men are women too. So they were celebrated right along with real, no, not real, normal, no, can't use that. Wait, I know, right alongside those that were assigned woman at birth. <laughs> Look at me go. So women are women, and men can be women, and from what we're seeing in just about any contest of strength, speed, or skill, men are better at being women than women. In fact, the womanhood of men was, I'd argue, more highly celebrated this Women's Month than the womanhood of women. But as we know, there's literally nobody in the entire government, well, at least on the left, that has any idea how to define what exactly a woman is, because none of them are biologists. So how can we be so sure that we were celebrating the right thing, the right people, the right totally fluid specific gender out of dozens, if not hundreds of possible genders, plus other if needed? But well, uh, not God, we don't, we don't like him. Gaia, Muhammad, Shango, whatever other false idol you have, one of those help you if you dare question women about being women or men about being women or etc. I haven't finished working out all of the possible permutations and combinations yet. I'll get back to you on that. Yeah, misstep once and you'll be canceled or bullied or shunned or pilloried, drawn and quartered, put in the Iron Maiden, forced to listen to Iron Maiden. I don't know, something like that. Why during COVID, and you can probably think of a million examples like these, were the big box stores safer to go to than the mom and pop shops? Why did all money have to be spent on the large internet resellers or the large conglomerations? Is it the same reason that the ultra-deadly virus wouldn't dare attack BLM riots or shopping aisles if you followed the arrow, or restaurant patrons while sitting down and on and on to infinity? Why couldn't we question any of these things? Why didn't it apply to our illustrious overlords? They seemed to do whatever they wanted to do. We're living in a contradictatorship. In a political discussion a number of years ago, I want to say it was maybe early in the Obama years, my dad and I were discussing left versus right, conservative versus liberal, and how he empathizes with the concept of the left because they appear to understand the problems and they appear to want to offer solutions. They appear to care about the little man. At least at the time, I don't know. I don't think we can say the same thing now. But at the time, they gave the appearance, and I agree. But it came down to one question. How do we know we're correct? And my answer was, follow the policies out to their absurd end. Do it with each policy individually, then start combining the policies. And you'll see that not only are each individual policy impossible to bring to fruition on their own, which I'm convinced the left has never had any intention to carry out most of what they say they're for, 
But when combined, every policy is a direct contradiction to every other policy. If you do A, then B through Z won't work and can't work. But if you do B, well, now A can't work and neither can C through Z. We are literally living in a contradictatorship where nothing can possibly work together, where our leaders can do everything they tell us we can't, where the laws apply to you unless you have enough power or money to say that they don't, where nothing is what it absolutely is unless the right people agree that in a specific instance it is, but they reserve the right to change our minds later for us. If you can't see the absolute talon marks of Satan all over this, uh, I'm not sure what to tell you. God is a God of absolute order, a God of perfect efficiency. God is not a God of chaos, disorder, waste, or contradiction. This world was created perfect. Man was created perfect. And although sin has damaged man, it's damaged the creation, it's introduced disorder and entropy, this world is still one of truth, logic, and reason. Paul, in reprimanding the Corinthians for having what amounted to chaotic church services with everyone trying to outspeak in tongues the next guy and generally outspiritual gift the next guy, he said, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Now, although this was stated for a specific reason at that time, the eternal truth holds true for us today. The historically accurate account of creation found in Genesis 1 speaks of morning and evening as part of the boundaries for each 24-hour day. And these words literally mean what they mean, morning and evening, 24-hour day. But there is at least an argument that they are also conceptually representative of moving from chaos to order. And there's a good argument for this, as Genesis 1-2 says that the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. It was an empty, fluid, formless blob. It was essentially chaos from which God caused order. We know that this creation is held together by the will of God, that our atoms stick together because of God. Yeah, I know, the natural bonding, attractive forces are the glue, but that only exists because God created it and allows it to exist. Gravity, the speed of light, the speed of sound, the orbits, the rotations, physics, the exact composition of the atmosphere, both in being able to breathe it and block the deadly harmful rays from the sun, all these things and so many more only exist because God set it up that way. Science only exists because God set it up that way. And that's it. If you want to know why we live in a contradictatorship, why things don't seem to make sense, why the unsaved world, and I'd argue that there are a percentage of truly saved individuals that get caught up in this as well, why they can't see, they, they seem to migrate to and willingly embrace clear contradictions, it's because of sin, because Satan has blinded eyes, because the mind has been compromised, because emotions, rather than logic and reason, are promoted and nurtured. Bottom line, the removal of, or the ignoring of, or the hostile dismissal of God from his own creation has resulted in man doing what they want, think how they want, act in whatever manner they see fit, and act in a manner that has lost connection with reality and truth. Here's the problem. There's no politician, there's no party, there's no election, there's no organization. Nothing exists that can correct this problem and open the eyes of those in chaos to see the confusion they're groping around in. The only answer to what we find ourselves in today is the gospel, salvation through Christ alone. Now, personally, I don't believe that this world in large part is destined to see the truth. Jesus, when asked by the disciples about why he taught in parables, said, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. 
Now, there's a lot of conjecture and heartburn about what this statement means. Personally, as a believer in the doctrine of election, I believe that this is stating that there are those destined to die in darkness, die unsaved. They are not among the elect, and they have no interest in salvation or truth. I also believe that there is enough evidence in the Bible to say that there are at least some sort of levels or striations to what we call hell, not in the Dante's Inferno sense, but levels just the same, and that blinding the eyes of those hostile toward God, toward the truth while on earth is actually merciful for them in the final judgment. Further, I know that speaking for myself, and I'm guessing this describes many of you, the more you pay attention to the news and current events and social media, etc., etc., having eyes that can see and ears that can hear, the chaos and confusion can be nearly overwhelming. I've stated before that I don't know how those without any faith, and specifically without faith in Christ, were able to manage their way through the COVID lockdown and sanity years. Well, maybe this is how. God has blinded the eyes or at least shielded the eyes of people so they can't see or at least they can't see the full extent of the chaos and confusion, the contradictions all around them. Seeing what I'm able to see, knowing that I have a sovereign God that's literally in control of every single atom at all times, knowing that God uses sin sinlessly to bring about his plan and purpose, that God is working all things for his glory and the ultimate good of his children, knowing all that, yet seeing what I'm allowed to see, it's very easy to become overwhelmed. For those that are at enmity with God, I believe God shows his infinite mercy by shielding the eyes of the unsaved. Just a theory, a theological theory. Now that said, our job as Christians doesn't change. As we navigate the frustrating world of chaos and confusion led along by our contradictatorships, we are to be ready and willing, look for ways to share the gospel with others, knowing that we may be the instrument that God uses to open the eyes of even one person. It's interesting to use hindsight to look back at the founders when they pieced together the Constitution and then the Bill of Rights to see everything they thought of. So many important areas were addressed and clarified, but then you look at what wasn't specified and you have to ask, why? How, how did you miss that? Welcome back to the American Genesis, episode 36, which is part 18 in our look at the amendments to the Constitution. In this episode, we're going to take a look at amendment number 20, because because that's the next one to look at. It's been 12 years since the 19th Amendment has been passed, which granted women the right to vote. Now we're in the year 1932. We're rid of that racist progressive nightmare Woodrow Wilson. We're nearing the end of a run of Republican presidents. Harding died in office two and a half years into his term of what appears to be a massive heart attack. Calvin Coolidge, one of the best presidents we've ever had, assumed the presidency, then won one more term. Herbert Hoover made it one term after Coolidge, which is where we're at, toward the end of Hoover's term. This amendment appears to seriously just be kind of a logistical amendment, just kind of cleaning up some things left unfinished. But let's dig into it. Who knows? Maybe there are some little nuggets in there. As always, let's start by reading the text. This amendment is made up of six sections. I'll read them all, then we'll work our way through them. Section 1. The terms of the president and vice president shall end at noon on the 20th day of January, and the terms of senators and representatives at noon on the 3rd day of January, of the years in which such terms would have ended if this article had not been ratified, and the terms of their successors shall then begin. Section 2. The Congress shall... <laughs> assemble at least once in every year, and such meetings shall begin at noon on the third day of January, unless they shall by law appoint a different day. Section 3. If at the time fixed for the beginning of the term of the president, the president-elect shall have died, the vice president-elect shall become president. 
If a president shall not have been chosen before the time fixed for the beginning of his term, or if the president-elect shall have failed to qualify, then the vice president-elect shall act as president until a president shall have qualified. And the Congress may by law provide for the case wherein neither a president-elect nor a vice president-elect shall have qualified, declaring who shall then act as president, or the manner in which one who is to act shall be selected, and such person shall act accordingly until a president or vice president shall have qualified. Section 4. The Congress may by law provide for the case of the death of any of the persons from whom the House of Representatives may choose a president whenever the right of choice shall have devolved upon them. And for the case of the death of any of the persons from whom the Senate may choose a vice president whenever the right of choice shall have devolved upon them. Section 5. Sections 1 and 2 shall take effect on the 15th day of October following the ratification of this article. And section 6, this article shall be inoperative unless it shall have been ratified as an amendment to the Constitution by the legislatures of three-fourths of the several states within seven years from the date of its submission. See what I mean? I mean, it looks like it's dates, it's logistics, it's procedure, it's nothing really that exciting, to be honest, but let's work our way through it, see what we can learn. Section 1 simply set the term start and end days for the President and Congress. This moved the term start date from March to January for the President and Congress, but since both the President and Congress really didn't start executing their duties until April, moving the term date to January removed a very awkward four, approximately four-month lame duck period from the election to the start of the term. The Constitution left the entire election process kind of vague with regard to dates for choosing electors, the date or dates for the populace to vote, when the term ends and the next begins, etc. This section simply set the date closer to the election date so as to give some crossover time without having an excessive lag. This also tied into Section 2, which mandated that Congress met at least once per year, with that meeting starting at noon on January 3rd. Now, I find it amusing that even at this point, the mandate was to meet at least once per year. Now, I'm sure in the 1930s, it wasn't an issue as much, but earlier in our history, those in Congress generally had a job, a career, you know, a life outside of the public servant job they were elected to. So to make sure they actually, you know, did something, the Constitution, with further clarification in this amendment, said, come on, you guys, you have to talk to each other at least once. Section 2 also mandated that the Congress would commence that meeting on January 3rd, the same day their term began. If you look at how this worked before, if the Congress is mandated to meet once per year, but the next Congress didn't assemble until April, it's possible that the lame duck Congress could meet and fulfill the requirements, which could then allow the new Congress to avoid meeting for over a year. Now, these days, Congress wants to meet and do things, which usually means bad news for you and I, while taking as much vacation as possible. Somehow those two things work, and and they are getting paid a relatively hefty sum in the process. None of this works out well for us. I mean, Congress meeting is generally bad for us. Congress not meeting, generally bad for us. Congress getting paid via our tax dollars is generally bad for us. Did you know that the congressional members starting in 1789 got a per diem only? Six dollars. They got, uh, they got $6 per day, which is the same as $136 per day in 2023 dollars. The House works about 150 days per year. The Senate works about 165 days per year. 
Oh, how would you like that schedule, huh? So using the larger figure, that would be a salary of $22,400 per year, per every year in 2023 dollars. Could you imagine any of the pretentious elitists in the House or Senate working for that today? In 1795, they got a huge boost to $7 per day, which would actually be $112 per day in 2023 dollars, so our current inflation actually lost them money. And then in 1855, they finally got an annual salary equating to $87,246 per year in 2023 dollars. Now today, or at least in 2022, their salary is $174,000 per year and has been since 2009. What's fun is that from 2009 to 2020, their salary lost 17% of its purchasing power because of inflation. You know, the, the inflation that they created for all of us to have and to hold, to love and to cherish until it kills us. But in straight numbers, $174,000 per year would be a per diem of $1,054 per day or an increase of over 10 times of what it started as. So when you look at uh, all the wonderful things they've done for us over the years, don't you just love the fact that your tax dollars go to pay them a really large salary for working not quite half a year and really only two-thirds of the actual five-day-a-week jobs that most people hold every year? Anyway, Section 2 forced the new Congress to meet at least once per year, starting the same day as their term commenced, so that way they'd earn their 2023 equivalent of $177,000 per year by meeting that, that time, by meeting that singular mandated time at least. Moving to section three before my brain explodes, this section deals with what happens if a president dies or isn't qualified during the transition period. So the key points are, first, the vice president-elect will assume the office of president at the start of the new term if the president-elect dies before assuming office. Second, the vice president-elect will temporarily assume the presidency at the start of the new term if Either a president-elect has not been chosen, which could happen if the elector is deadlocked or if the election isn't certified, or if the president-elect fails to qualify by the start of the new term. Now, this one's highly unlikely, as this would be the country or the electors voting in someone that didn't meet the age requirement or residency requirement, probably a handful of other things there, too. Very unlikely. And then... Last, the Congress has the power to disqualify both the presidential and vice presidential candidates, in which case they decide who should be acting president until a qualified president or vice president is selected. Now, I don't think that Section 3 has ever had to be used, and I'll be honest, that's a good thing, especially today. With as contentious and volatile as everything is, I just think this could be the spark that ignites the powder keg. And not so much if the president-elect dies, which, let's be honest, if the uh, worst-case scenario were to happen and America's shame continues with the re-election of the Biden and Harris Comedy Hour, it's very possible that Biden dies before starting the next term. It's probably equally possible that he's actually dead now, and this is like a weekend at Bernie's type situation. Then President Harris... And if that didn't make you lose, I mean, if only for a second, just a little bladder control, I, I, I don't know what would. I mean, you, you're a better man than I am. Anyway, if a president-elect died, okay, right? But if we got to a point where a president and a vice president were elected, then found to be unqualified, and then the Congress has to select a president, oh, 
Oh, I think I think we can agree when I say that uh, that could only go super well for all of us these days. Moving on to Section 4, this is really just a continuation of Section 3. It basically says that if a president or a vice president needs to be selected by Congress, it comes down to death of one or both of the individuals. Then one chamber gets to choose one, the other chamber gets to choose the other. Really nothing overly complex or interesting there. Sections 5 and 6, also not interesting. They're just cleaning up the amendment. So the new dates would take effect on October 15th following the ratification of the article and has has been done before. They put a seven-year time limit on, uh, on the amendment being ratified by the states. Don't know why. This doesn't really seem to be an overly controversial amendment. I don't know why they would have thought this would be slow in getting passed by the states. Um, and it really didn't take that long. It was proposed on March 2nd, 1932. It was ratified just under a year later on January 23rd, 1933. And there really wasn't any controversy here. The first state to ratify it was Virginia, ratifying it two days after it was sent to the states. The 36th state to ratify it, allowing it to become law, was Missouri on January 23rd, 1933. And the final 12 states all ratified it by April 26th, 1933. This one was just kind of a no-brainer, to be honest. Now, although the succession sections three or four have never had to be used, according to the Wikipedia entry, just 23 days after this was ratified and made law, President-elect Franklin Delano Roosevelt was targeted for assassination by Giuseppe Zangara, Zangara, I don't know how you say that in Italian. Anyway, the attempt was unsuccessful, obviously, but had he killed FDR, this brand new amendment would have kicked in immediately, and the vice president-elect, John Nance Garner, would have been sworn in as president. Knowing what FDR really did to our country, I gotta wonder what it might have been like if Garner had been sworn in instead. Eh, but here we are. And with that, we'll have to bring this episode of the American Genesis to a close as the next amendment must be an episode of its own. So with that, all that's left to say is uh, until next time. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Week 16. There's one thing about me being overloaded and not being able to guarantee two episode drops per week. You're getting a goal update with every episode. I don't know if that's a plus or a minus, but I'm going to call it a positive so I don't feel sad. So just a side note, what has been keeping me so busy? Well, I got the four-wheeler running right. Uh, it was pulling and cleaning the carb, changing the oil, placing a few things like spark plug, carb bowl gasket, choke needle, you know, some different things like that. And now, after adjusting the fuel mixture back to factory on a clean carburetor, setting the idle adjustment properly, just tapping that starter button fires it right up, rather than before where I was cranking and cranking and a lot of backfiring and it didn't want to run. It's much better now. Plus, I don't have to threaten to take it to the crushers anymore. I've also been doing some repairs and modifications to the backyard fence, which means digging up poles, resetting poles, unstringing fence, restringing fence, replacing top rails. I, I just should, I make bad life decisions here. Replacing and adding gates. This is a thankless job, especially when you have various stumps that you have to work around as well. 
And you know, no matter how much or what type of working out you do, like, you know, inside, like exercise working out, doing real outside work, boy, that always finds muscles that have done their darndest to stay hidden, especially for us computer nerd desk jockey types. Also did some work on the truck, had some drama with the kid, did some driving with the kid, had some drama while driving with the kid, plus, you know, the routine stuff, cooking, cleaning, trying to keep up with my other goals. I mean, whew, I, mean I don't even get a lot of sleep. I average maybe six hours a night, maybe. And, and remember, I'm not wasting time playing games on my phone either. <sighs> but I did get my old turntable set back up for the first time in I don't know how many years. And that took a little time to get set up. I wanted to put it a good distance away from all the speakers so the vibrations wouldn't interfere with it. But uh, yeah, I found a site that had reproduction vinyl of some of the classic Christian rock groups. Specifically, I had to purchase the Petra albums when they went on sale. Kind of expensive if they're not on sale. But when they went on sale, I grabbed them. And I'm telling you, they just sound so good on vinyl. I mean, it is a different sound. Anyway, I'm not just lazing around doing nothing. I'm actually pretty busy. And I'm trying to work in these podcasts as much as possible. But they just take some time, as does everything else. Now that said, let's get to this goal update. This will be fairly quick. As we always do, let's start with my journey through weight loss. As of Tuesday's weigh-in, I lost another 1.6 pounds, bringing my 16-week weight loss to 30 pounds even. Yep, I made 30 pounds. I'm now at 184.4 pounds. That's an average of 1.87 pounds per week, or 1 and 7 eighths pounds to you and me. And that puts me 6 pounds ahead of my goal. So another 9 or 10 pounds to go, I don't know, and then and then evaluate. And just kind of see if I want to go lower or not. We'll just kind of have to see. I don't think I want to go below 170, though. The last time I did that, some of the older women at church were getting concerned. They were asking me if I was all right, was I sick, and then they tried to force more food on me at the potlucks. Anyway, this goal is back to a solid green. Of course, Tuesday night, you know, the night after I weighed in, the kid and I drove to the next town over and went to her favorite little Chinese buffet where she gets white rice and then one type of chicken for the first plate and then white rice and then the same kind of chicken in the second plate out of the entire buffet. That's it. That's all she ever eats is that white rice and, uh, and the one type of chicken. Now, like, I'm not a buffet star. I'll admit that. I... I bring shame to my family because I don't partake in a buffet the way it should be done. But wow. I mean, wow. But got her some time behind the wheel. We ate too much. So this week is all about burning that back off again. Moving to reading. The pace slowed somewhat this week. Only 121 pages. Now that's still ahead of my goal of approximately 70 pages per week. Uh, as we jumped into the next month and based how I do my calculations in my spreadsheet, that puts me at 187.5% of my goal pace, which for a true comparison, I was at 148.8% at the beginning of April. So moving along pretty nicely here, gaining a lot of ground. So total pages for the year is at 2,812, closing in on my goal of 3,600. So why did the pace slow a little bit last week? Well, a couple reasons. I mean, one reason is the same thing as I opened the update with. I mean, I've been busy, right? But the other reason is that the two books I'm working on, eh, they're okay. They're definitely not as compelling as the others. 
But the way my mind works, unless a book is, I mean, just, just awful, I'll just slog my way through it. And so I'm getting there. And they're not terrible. I mean, they're, they're good. They're just not great, at least not so far. And as always, I'll tell you about them when I finish. That said, this goal still stays a solid green. Now, the last two are kind of repetitious at this point. Not really much to elaborate on, but we'll go through them anyway. Bible reading, again, a slight tick upwards to 158.9% of my goal pace. Reading in the daily Bible, I just crossed into November, so I have about 60 days of reading to complete. And at my current pace, that should be about six weeks, maybe a bit longer as I have some full days of driving coming up and some pretty exciting fun stuff in the next month. But definitely by the end of June, I'll be moving into the next phase of Bible reading. So solid green there. And finally, devotions. That one is also pretty much on autopilot at this point. Uh, we're well into the book of Exodus at this point, just uh, about through the plagues. That percentage, of course, slowly ticks up currently at 125.1% of my goal pace. So that one stays a nice solid green also. And that's it. That's the update. As always, if you have any questions or comments, you can comment on the episode or shoot me an email. Info's in the notes. And I hope you're still pursuing any goals that you've set for yourself and that you're staying motivated, which is very not easy sometimes. Okay, bye.